Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who is nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid-career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, which now, with now 58 episodes, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the already D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest for today's show is Kyle Shopman. Kyle is the president of CBRE Mid-Atlantic Region. CBRE, of course, being the largest brokerage firm, perhaps in the United States and in the world, real estate commercial brokerage. Why did I want to interview Kyle? Well, she's new to the Washington area. She came here in 2019 and she came from New York. She's been with CB for so many years, and she has a corporate background. She wasn't. She didn't come up through the sales environment. I started at CB myself in 1983, stayed there through 1985, and everyone around me was had a sales background and was sales-oriented, including top management. Hers comes from corporate, so I was curious about it. Why did she come to CB without a without a sales background per se, but it turns out she does. And I learned that. 
And she, how did she adapt to coming into the Washington, D.C. market, moving here, and then suddenly the pandemic hit, and she had to adapt to that. So we go into her background, as I usually do, and we get into the questions I just posed. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting conversation. She's had to adapt, understand what working with brokers is all about, and learning the industry. And she seems to have adapted well, and people seem to really enjoy her. So we had an engaging conversation. It was interesting to compare what brokerage was like when I was doing it back in the mid-80s and where it has, how it has evolved today. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Kyle Shopman. Kyle Shopman, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So could you describe your role at CBRE as president of the Mid-Atlantic region and your focus day-to-day? So I'm responsible for our advisory business in the Mid-Atlantic. We have six offices from Baltimore down to Southern Virginia. The advisory business includes leasing, capital markets, property management, valuations across all asset classes. So I'm responsible for our strategic direction, for growing the business, and for both developing and adding great talent to our organization. That's great. We're going to, I'll get into a lot more details about your job and everything else, but before that... I'd like to get into your origin story, if I could, a little bit. Where'd you grow up, Kyle? So I was born in New York City, and I grew up in Short Hills, New Jersey, which ah. is about 30, 40 minutes. Out. It sounds like you know sure. you know Short Hills. Yeah. People know it for the mall, but, but right. that's where I grew up. Uh-huh. And then when I was in college, my parents moved down to Winter Park, Florida, so that became home afterwards. Interesting, interesting. So what'd your parents do? What influences did your parents have on you? So I'm an only child and had amazing parents, was very close to them, and was very fortunate to have a wonderful upbringing. My mother, in her early days, worked at an ad agency in Park Avenue. So, really? yep, that was before, before I was born. Then when I was born, she stayed home to take care of me, but also worked in my elementary school in the principal's office and as a teacher aide. So she was smart, outgoing, had a great sense of style. I think I got my, my love of fashion from her. And, and my father, you know, equally a wonderful person. He was a civil engineer and his work had him focus on more infrastructure related projects. And he traveled the world, but also worked, really? you know, in the, the New York tri-state Long Island area. Did so. he have his own firm or who did he work for? No, he worked for a firm out in Long Island, then for another firm called Raymond International. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for, for that role, that was, I guess, where his work intersected our lives because he spent two years over in the United Arab Emirates uh, wow. in Russell Kema doing some infrastructure projects around oil and gas and building a pipeline and a really kind of fascinating, obviously, place to be back then when I was growing up. And that was when I was in high school. You were there too? I did. I got to spend a summer there with him. So, and my mother and I spent some time over there. We did not move there because they, my parents wanted me to, you know, continue school and finish high school in New Jersey before I went off to college. But a little hot over there at that time? It was a little hot, yes. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely that. And, uh, and a very different place than what, you know, I've not been back in, in recent years, but very different than what it, you know, obviously has grown to be today with right. Abu Dhabi and Dubai and just kind of the, the wealth that's in that part of the country and, and what they've built out. But I got to see my share of camels and, and, <laughs> and really it was, it was a great experience. Plus firsthand, I got to see what he was doing and that's where my first real introduction to civil engineering, which I ended up studying at Duke, kind of came from. So what did you study? What did you? What was your interest in high school? What did you do there? Did you go to public school? Or I private? did. I did. I went to public school, Milburn 
high school, junior high there, and then you know, Glenwood Elementary. So mm-hmm. all right in the New Jersey area right. in the town that I grew up in. So uh, growing up, I, I, I've told this story in the past. I actually wanted to be an astronaut growing up. So really? that was, but obviously that, that did not happen, but it's, sure. but it was, I think my, my sense of adventure and, and just the fact that the way my parents raised me, it was in a way that anything was possible. If you put your mind to it, worked hard. And so mm-hmm. um, that was something I thought would be interesting to do, but you know, took a pivot and civil engineering when I really saw the work that my father did and how you can change a community and really have such a effect on, you know, the world around you. It was sort of like, okay, building and creating things. That sounds like something I would love to do. Cool stuff. So why Duke? So I, it's funny. I wanted to go to school, even though I grew up in the Northeast, somewhere down South. Duke had an amazing liberal arts environment in school, but also in a wonderful engineering program. Mm-hmm. So for me, I wanted to study engineering, but do it in a liberal arts kind of setting. And I will say, I remember visiting Duke with my parents and you know, the rolling lawns and just, just the overall campus, the architecture, absolutely beautiful. The and gardens so, there are pretty They special. are. You've been there too. I love my that. My son interviewed there. Oh, he yeah. did? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely the gardens. I mean, the golf course, there's just all kinds of, you know, and now again, another area that's grown tremendously through technology and what's going on in Research Triangle Park, but it was a wonderful place to, to go to school. Did you look at the Ivies too? Obviously you did well in schools. Or... I did. Actually, I looked also, I mean, I looked at Virginia Tech down here in this, right, this part of the sure. world, but also Cornell. And I just decided not to stay in the the north northeast. and in the cold, <laughs> northeast and the cold. Yes. So, but and it was a great experience. Had your parents moved to Florida at that point, or not? They moved when I was at when I was in Duke. Yeah. So during college. So uh-huh. when I came home for the summers, it was to Winter Park. South. Okay. Yeah. So your dad's the one that inspired you for towards civil engineering. He did. He did. Well, that's cool. I always liked math and science growing up. Sure. I don't. I don't know why. It just sort of was a, you know, how I was wired. But it all kind of came together with that. Mm-hmm. Then you. Jumped into the chemical business. So talk I about did. that. Why? I did. Civil engineering to chemical. That's interesting. So Dow and, and other firms came to Duke to interview. And I, I think, you know, as you graduate, you're trying to think, what is it you want to do? And the program that, that Dow offered for my first job was perfect and actually mirrors what we have at CBRE called our wheel program, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. But I was able to enter Dow in a rotational assignments program that allowed me to both do engineering and work on our manufacturing plant for a period of time. I could do sales and marketing, research and development, really go through different parts of the business to ultimately then decide what area, you know, was I most interested in pursuing. And so I thought it was just a great way to do kind of a mini ongoing education around where would my skills and my interests best fit. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being in sales and marketing. That was the path that I took, but did have a chance to, you know, do a little bit with my civil engineering degree when I was there as well. What other options did you look at other than Dow when you were interviewing? There was a couple think tank, more like consulting type work. So that one, actually one of them was in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So I guess my path would have been maybe different if I'd gone in that direction. But, but paths still led to D.C. for me after all. Mm-hmm. So how long were you at Dow then? It was like nine years or so. Long it was a time. long time. Yeah. So actually the, the fun for, part for Dow. So I decided to go into sales and marketing. So while I didn't focus on the chemical side of the business, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia and did sales for Dow and I mm-hmm. sold polyethylene. So I sold plastics throughout the Southeast. So that was my first for, <laughs> foray into a sales type training, I guess, and, and environment. Very different at that time. Also, 
you know, not a lot of women doing that at the time, but I think a great experience and I so really enjoyed you, it. So who were your customers? So there were large manufacturers that would buy bulk resin and plastic products to make mostly plastic bags mm-hmm. or do injection molding of, let's say it could be pharmaceutical things, but any kind of plastic molded products that you would use. Okay. I'm going to ask you this later, but okay. what you just told me was an interesting clue as to why you are here. Okay. At CBRE, that you had sales experience. So I now, did have sales experience. So, <laughs> so reading your background, I didn't know that until you just said it. So now I understand why you're here. Well, it's kind of collide a little bit, Exactly. Right? Because I just didn't think that somebody was in pure management that didn't have any sales background could, could work at a place like CBRE because this is a sales environment. But <laughs> it is, it is. But I'll say another piece of my background, which I know we'll, we'll talk about on the consulting side. Mm-hmm. It's it's a much more consultative sales environment. So it, it really is all the pieces that, that come together for where the business is today. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. So let's keep on the theme here. So nine years at Dow Chemical, and then you went on to get your MBA at University of Michigan. Right. So I did. I did that while I was at Dow, and it took me... I think three years to do it because it was a full-time program, but I could only do it in the evenings and full-time students could take classes at night. Weekends also were built into that. So a lot of time traveling from Midland, Michigan to Ann Arbor, which you know is not a not, not a short, a short drive. drive. <laughs> not a short drive not, at all. That's not even a commute. That's a that, yep. that's an hour and a half at least. It, it absolutely was. And it took a it took a certain discipline to 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 do that and make it work. But I wanted to go to a, a top school, so your alma mater, University of Michigan. So, so I'm, I'm sure you would agree with me. And they had an amazing program, and you just find a way to make those things work. And I think the the fun part for me is I was doing that journey. Other folks at Dow heard about it, and a couple other of my colleagues applied. They got in, and so the latter part of my program, I had some people to commute with, which made it nice. Cool. So you were there nine years. Then you joined Price Waterhouse. I so did. Why? So I, while the plastic and chemical industry was super interesting, and I actually over my time at Dow was able to, once I left sales, I, I came back and, and did work as a sales training manager and did other work in our business more on the plastic side. Mm-hmm. I think for me, consulting was always something that attracted me because of the variety of the clients you might work with, the opportunity to, to go into new organizations and experience different things and, and advise them on, on their business. And so it was, it was, again, when Michigan or Michigan was looking at, you know, different opportunities there and folks came in and talking to PwC, Accenture. Those were a couple of the, the firms that I spoke with. I had done some supply chain work while at Dow. And so actually my first, you know, work in consulting was more along the supply chain logistics mm-hmm. track. But I really did love it. I love the challenges, meeting new people, working with organizations to help change and transform the way they worked. And so that was my my time in consulting. Interesting. So being in Ann Arbor at Michigan kind of opened your eyes a little bit to other things other than the chemical business, right? It did. I mean, as you know, Midland, awesome town, wonderful people, but 40,000 people, the majority at the time worked, right? Yes, very small. But might be bigger now, but, but at the well, time growing it up was. in New York City area, that had to have been a little bit of a constraining environment to it was, you, it, was, it, 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 was, it was different, but I'd say what was great about it, in starting in the program that I did, I started with, I think, eight other professionals. We were all right. in it together. We lived 
in the same apartment complex for all experiencing right. that that kind of you know opportunity and what mm-hmm. Dow had to offer together and it was a it was a great way to enter the workforce and that's why I'm a big believer in CBRE's wheel program too because as you know our business is you know quite large and very diverse and sometimes people come in and they might want to be a broker they think one day but then all of a sudden they see another part of our business that they've got passion about so being able to experience things and and then be able to lay your path forward from that i think is a great way to to start a career yeah so talk about your experience at pwc and then i understand it was sold to ibm so what how all that transition yep. took place and stuff yep so it was it was awesome during that time I, as i mentioned i started more in the supply chain world but right. then pivoted to change strategy and change management which uh-huh. really is my is my passion i do enjoy really? coming in yep coming into a company looking at what's working well looking at what could be done differently and then laying out that roadmap and improving it and really leaving it better than it was before before i you know came in the door so a lot of the work that we did at pwc were advising large corporate users around processes linked to sales, sales effectiveness. So the sales thread got to continue mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. implementing technologies that helped make those teams more efficient. So I did that across, I guess I was in the pharmaceutical sector. I worked a bit, actually a little bit in the in the chemical and plastic sector. So it was a variety of experiences that were awesome to, to have at these different organizations. And it was very rewarding to see a strategy that you set you know, put into into implementation and, and really watching that business grow as a result sure. of that. Sure. Uh, I made partner there and that was really important to me. And so, and then the IBM piece, I mean, really they took our whole services business. At the time, Ginny Rometty was, you know, leading mm. IBM and was just trying to expand beyond the products that they offered and, and bring a services mindset to that business. Were you part of that merger then? Or? I was, yeah, I went over to IBM. You yep, did. was part of that yeah. and was there for a, a period of time. And then somebody else came knocking on my door, so to speak. So why did CBRE come knocking? Yeah. No, it's, it was funny. I think, as you know, this this business has people that have been in it for a long time. It's a very networked business. I, at the time, had a friend who I had actually grown up with. She was at CBRE in the New York office. And I wasn't looking to make a change, but she reached out to me and kind of a, a door opened. She came, CBRE was looking at the time to add to the leadership team and they wanted outside real estate experience to bring a new perspective to the business. And she asked if I'd come and, and meet the team there and talk to them and explore it. And I did. Mm-hmm. I would say the one thing that was also different at that time, the life of a consultant, you were traveling all the time too. I was living in Manhattan, but I was never really in Manhattan. So the opportunity to you know, focus on something that was based Know, in the city Did that you I live. Family at that point. I was not married yet. Nope. So I was, and my parents, as I said, were down in Florida at that point. Got in time. it. Okay. But I will say this: is, is where since we're doing the the or, origin piece, I do give the move I made to CBRE a little bit credit for for the husband that I married today. Only in that he, if I had not been in New York at the time when he came to visit, and he was someone I knew from my past, we we maybe never would have been able to to get together that that time, and then. You know, mm-hmm. now fourteen years later, we'd be married. So <laughs> that's great. So you decided what? What was the trigger move? I mean, what was it about CBRE that really turned you on? I guess about the opportunity because I'm sure you were approached by other firms too. I'm, consultants it, are all the time. So you are. I think it it it, it harkened back to to the civil engineering background ah, and training that I had. Okay. 
you know, New York City, I mean, the we I remember back in the days the Law and Order series would have those banners on the signpost real estate capital of the world. I mean, it just the buzz and the feeling of that city in New York and commercial real estate just seemed super interesting. But I truly did not have deep knowledge about what you know commercial real estate was all about at that moment in time. So it took me six months to make the decision to to move. But I met a lot of the team at CBRE through that process. Amazing people. And it just really helped further cement that there was a real opportunity to use my skill sets and, and apply it in a different way because they were looking to do some things that were different than what they'd done in the past. So that's where I'm going here. So what was their vision for you? Because you're a unique animal coming in to some extent. So. No, it's, it's true. And that was always, <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was often discussed like, you know, non-real estate background, right. but I'm, but I am a believer that someone without that background can be successful in this business and bring a different perspective. So they were looking of, of how to help our the salespeople at the time, the brokers, be more effective and efficient and how do they better serve their customers, you know, what kind of tools, training, all the things that I'm very passionate about. What could we do and put in place to really help raise the game? And even at that time, that more consultative advisory approach to our business mm-hmm. was starting to take root. And it wasn't just about, you know, the next big transaction. So I think that they liked that background. And and truthfully, John, I had to, I had to play to my strengths as a consultant of coming in, being a good listener, understanding where those opportunities were, and then putting a plan together and, you know, creating things that, that the team at CBRE felt were valuable and, and then along the way, you know, learn from the best what the real estate business was all about. So what was your first role? And was it just in the New York office or did you have a, any broader footprint than that? Yeah, first of all, I was a, as a managing director in the New York office, 200 Park, right above Grand Central. Mm-hmm. And it was working predominantly with the office leasing brokers out of the gate. But then over time, you know, we added in some of the capital markets teams, our debt and structure finance teams were part of my responsibility but it started in the office side of the business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm going to go now into my a little bit of my history. I know. I love this. So it's awesome. <laughs> so I joined in 1983 in, in the suburban Chicago office. And at that time, it was called Cobo Banker Commercial Real Estate Services at the time, CBCRES. And everyone from the CEO all the way down to except the administrative staff, were sales-oriented folks. Now, at that point, we did have a mortgage banking unit. We had appraisal and a few other ancillary. There was a consulting practice, but it was just, you know, infancy stages at that point. So it was a brokerage shop, you know. And the guys that were hired, typically for sales, came out of Xerox, IBM, Mm. in sales of products similar to your background, you know, a Dow and you know, that would be a track for somebody to hire. When they open a new office, that's who the hires were. And there were some, you know, when they open a brand new office, sometimes incidentally. So this office in Washington, I learned from the podcasts that I've done with other CB people, is that you were generalists. You'd come in and you just basically got the phone book. This is before CoStar. This is before, this right. <laughs> before Black Sky, before all that. Basically, you got the phone book. Because we didn't have internet, we didn't have any of that, and you just figured out who you're going to patch into. So it was a whole different orientation than what it sounds like it was even when you started here. So talk about the cultural changes of CBRE since then, if you can 
I don't, even though you don't go back that far, but talk about kind of the evolution of that a little bit, if you can. Well, I think you, you, you said it perfectly in that what might have been more of a sales transaction mindset culture became more of an advisory culture. We became more of a professional services business, which plays to, to my background, but also to what I think makes this business so exciting and what it is today, because there's so many more services that our clients are looking to buy mm -hmm. than just, you know, help us with office leasing. And so that's, I guess, been the fun part to watch that change over time. I also think that the, the teams and the, and the professionals have become more collaborative over time. You know, New York actually was really a leader, even when I showed up around understand the importance of, of having great market information right. and sharing that information among the professionals, you know, there so that they could deliver the best possible outcomes for their clients. And so that culture of information sharing and collaboration, but something that was proprietary and unique to CBRE, I think really helped create, you know, a powerhouse of a, of a team for us in New York and other markets also followed suit. Chicago was strong at doing that. I think DC started that. So I, I think we watched over time, that culture of collaboration, information sharing, being someone who can help our clients across the full spectrum of real estate solutions as we've added more capabilities has been a big part of our business evolving. Mm -hmm. You've advanced through several positions at CBRE. Talk about these moves and what you gained from each. We've been the evolution of the culture since you joined. You did a little of that just now, yeah. but maybe expand based on your specific career experience. So I say one of the one of the the most fun roles I had at CBRE, and I did it for, I think, seven years, was I ran our law firm practice group. And really? that was the first time, even though I was based in New York, it was comprised of our, our sales professionals that, you know, senior, very excellent at what they, if they do, but focused primarily on, on serving law firm clients. And, and they were around the U.S. And so that was my first exposure to different markets, to our senior people in other markets, and also to what other cities and markets did and how they approached the business. And so it was it was a it was a fun fun way to really get more of a platform view of CBRE and really to see how we could take, you know, what we had as a platform and best serve our law firm clients at a much bigger level. So whether it was nationally and and also globally. So I think that that we've also, I guess, you know, through my my role in, in New York, our our approach and go-to-market strategy is best team on the field. And so we used to call it back in the New York days, and maybe when you were there, managed brokerage. Now we call it sales management, but it's how do we field the best professionals for a client opportunity and to serve mm -hmm. their needs. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that during my time also was was you know implemented throughout our different markets and really helping, I think, both our the leadership teams in those markets understand the approach to do that, but also you know making sure that our clients understood that who they were working with from CBR really were the, the best to serve the needs that they had. So let me go back to law firm practice yeah. for a minute, because obviously in Washington, that's yes. perhaps the largest user base here in downtown Washington. What is unique about the law firm space other than other office users? You know, and why did you segment so much to that? What, what are attorneys looking for in office space that is unique from what other users want? Well, I think it's it's very it's 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 well it continues to evolve like even today yes, right as we as we're trying to Full understand right yeah. return to office and what that means. I mean, over my period of time, we watched where you know it was a very much an office dense environment, and 
that perimeter office and that large office was something an attorney, just like our sales professionals back in the day, would earn over over time. And I think as as law firms started to look at their business, it was like, okay, what do we what do we do about the office? Do we change that up and have you know more of a one size universal kind of office? You know, downsizing the space and footprint was something that that law firms were looking to do well before COVID. Law libraries, things that were you know obviously highly paper based, well now so much is digitized. So do you still have the need for that? You know, and how do we how do we transform a, a law firm office that's one that's also client-centric? So you've got space and meeting space and things that you can do from a client standpoint. So I feel like both the, the technology piece and just kind of what is going to attract and retain talent. It's a, an apprenticeship model, just like I think our brokerage model is, where if you bring in an associate, you know, how do you help them learn and grow? And and so how do you create an environment? And I think that's what law firms are looking at today that will help them attract and retain the best talent for that particular firm. And then the office today, you know, is, is needs to be, as we, we often say now, magnetize, you know, be a magnetizing effect because people want to be there. There's a reason to be there. It's interesting. I've interviewed several lawyers for the podcast, and most recently Ron Gart with Seifarth, and he said that, you know, he'll come into the office and he'll look in the office and there's hardly anyone there. And a partner, they had a partner meeting and they were told that everyone had to be there in the office. He shows up, there were three guys in the office, in the in the conference room and five on the screen. And the guy looks up and he says, I thought everybody was supposed to be in the office. <laughs> right, right. You know, attorneys don't need to be there unless they are hiring or training or, you know, trying to build a culture, at least in their small team of their associates. And that's one thing that I asked him about. He said, yes, it's, it's important to have kind of this incidental contact and they can also watch me do my practice and hear what I'm saying when I'm talking to clients. It's important to hear that. And I think it's similar in the brokerage profession as well, don't you think? Yep, 100%. I mean, if you're, you know, in more of a old school term would be bullpen, but more in an open environment, or you hear someone on the phone or you can watch your senior broker negotiate something or make a make a canvassing call that's, you know, doesn't know the person on the other end that well, you learn in that moment. And you can't get that via Zoom. And so I, I do think, you know, the world right now is very much hybrid and maybe guided flexibility in some ways because they try to bring people in at least on the same day because you don't want to show up and you know, you're the only one in the office that day. And so I think there's ways to, to work around that. But it, it's an interesting moment in time around that, I think, for many businesses. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see large companies operate where the largest sources of revenue are from individual producers and brokers. Is it still the case that CBRE, as far as you know, as far as revenue production for the for the company, or has revenue diversified to where larger portions are derived from steadier sources like property management, ongoing contract services? Yeah, I mean, we've we've definitely diversified, and I think it's it's been something that's been happening over time. I started at CBRE in two thousand seven. That was right, I think two thousand six end of two thousand six was when the Trammell Crow merger or acquisition Mm -hmm. took place. And so the whole outsourcing business that came with Trammell Crow and some of the things that we, that are more account oriented that we would call our, our corporate services business or our now global workplace solutions business and overall account business makes a a much larger part of our business today. I think when I started originally in New York, especially that large one-off transaction was probably 60, 70% of what our business was about. But now I think it's much more even between the recurring, is your point, recurring revenue, account business, 
where clients want us to take care of their whole portfolio, it's probably more, you know, 50-50 potentially around that. So it's, it's, and I think what, what really also helped us through the pandemic was that diversification. It just made our business more resilient because of the variety of, of business types that we serve and segments and sectors mm-hmm. that we serve. Well, as a public company, you know, obviously a quarterly return, uh, you have to report, and you, you know, one thing that stock analysts always look for is steadiness of income, yes. or at least some way to project. In brokerage, it's hard to do that often. It is. It's. It. I mean, as you know, as a hundred percent commission business, it can be very variable. You can have big, big years, and and then a little bit quieter years. So, you have to have that mindset to see the long game. I would say, right? <laughs> yeah. So, a couple of the brokers that I've interviewed said, you know, for instance, I, I interviewed. Paul and Bill Collins over at, you know, Fishman Wakefield, they're arguably the most successful office brokers in the, in the, in the, in the, in the city. In 1990, they had, he said, a goose egg, you know, and it, you know, it's, it's the risk you take when you go into this business to some extent. It is, but the rewards can be amazing and the satisfaction amazing too. So I think for the right person with the right mindset, I, I believe it's such an amazing career to have. Sure. So why have you stayed with large companies instead of taking on more entrepreneurial opportunities for yourself? You know, more small company. Is it risk mitigation? Is it just you like the big cultural, the big company cultural environment? What is it about that? I think the opportunities that that both came my way and that I was looking for were just situated with larger companies. With that said, though, I think even within a large company, the variety of opportunities you can have, and especially in a place like CBRE, we're still very entrepreneurial, even though we're so large. And so you can have the best of both worlds at a company like ours. And so, you know, even with my consulting background, I got to experience lots of different businesses. So still had that exposure. But yes, you're right. I was never at a small company. But I do think it also helped me really navigate and, and grow with CBRE because we are much bigger now and a much more matrixed organization. And some of the things that other companies like Dow Chemical had in place a long time ago, obviously, as we've grown over time, we're, we're much more akin to that. So, mm-hmm. Turning the real estate markets, we talked a little bit about this earlier. What do you think the long-term impact of the COVID crisis will be? Will office demand reduce long-term? How will space use be affected? So that's like the multi-million dollar <laughs> question, a question that, that, that we're asked all the time. And yeah. I would say it's still evolving. And I suspect that's the answer that you get. And I would say that the, you know, the we're not in like the new normal. I mean, people talk about the new normal. We're in the next normal and then there'll be another next normal. And so, you know, clearly it has affected our business and our markets. I'm thrilled, actually, to see all the traffic coming back, you know, to downtown D.C. And, and I'm hopeful that that means more people will be in the office. Not but, as much um, foot traffic yet, though. Yeah, I think that the, but the road traffic, isn't it shocking after Labor much Day? It's taking so. taking yeah. a, long, a long time to, to get around. But I do think look, we need to it's it's it is changing what people want out of their office space. What people expect is different. I feel we were very fortunate here in our office and we actually had been doing this workplace 360 our office is set up is unassigned seating much more collaborative space than our old office was over on the east end and everything that we did and we did it and opened in march 2020 then sent everyone home two weeks later but we but we obviously re-entered shortly thereafter it, it's been 
perfect for what the world is all about now because we do have these awesome collaborative spaces that people can meet. You you can come and use the space, you know, as as you need to. The technology is, you know, eons where it was before. And we were fortunate too that we trained up everybody on Zoom before they had to really use Zoom on a regular basis to to perform their work. So I think today people are looking for for that kind of space that's going to attract people back in the office. And on a personal note, I mean, at this point, the five day in the office, I mean, we've got plenty of people here that are five days a week at the teams that want to work together and be together. But I do think flexibility is, you know, the name of the game these days and, and understanding those needs of the business and the individual are going to be super important as we navigate, you know, through the years ahead. So now that you've talked about this space, you moved over from, I think it was 9th Street yep, North again yep, yep. on the East End to now you're at 1900 N Street on, in CBD. Why did you make the move here? What about this space? I think JBG was a developer of the project. It was. It was. Yep. It was. So it's it. So that was another kind of fun challenge for me. I was new to the market. It started in January 2018, moving from New York. So and one of the first things I needed to do is we had already kicked off our search for new office space. So if this had been a project in New York, it would have been one thing because I, I know the New York market, but I did not know the DC market very well. But it was super, it was very fun for me because I got to sit in the client's shoes in this case. And so obviously we had you know brokers from CB working on, on the project and we went through the whole process that we would do with our clients. So we gathered a committee together. We did a workplace visioning session of what we wanted the workplace to be. And so through that, you know, a few things and through our tools and technology. I mean, a lot of our teams commute from more of this side of town. So there was an element of the commute, which I'd been told had gotten worse and worse over the years before I came to go from this side of town to the East End where we were. Right. A lot of our clients and businesses were more centrally located, you know, to this part of town. Though Obviously, we cover, you know, beyond you know, downtown D.C. as far as our reach. So we 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 just looked and we knew that to do this workplace 360 what is what we call it a newer construction is more conducive to it having a lot of natural light you know big windows high ceilings all of those elements that can come with new construction were important so we you know started to look at, at buildings this one just was perfect for all of those reasons but we had to to you know score it out too but even the the entry experience when you came in today it just the lobby that just the people wanted it to feel special. And so, you know, the aspects of both the, the building itself, the layout, which, you know, in this case, the narrow floor plate has lights on all, light on all sides. It really hit all of the different elements as we were looking at space and what we could do. We're on two floors and we have an internal staircase. So that collaboration and connectivity also is much more achievable with the size of the floor plate. So lots of different variables, but it, for us was a flight to quality, which I think we're seeing a lot of you know, people and clients do these days as they figure out what the future of their office is going to be. Mm-hmm. So you looked at a lot of alternatives, I assume, when you were looking. They probably looked at more before I came into town. We were down to probably a short list of like, I don't know, seven or eight or so. Mm-hmm. So not, and most of it was towards this side of town. Yeah. 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 So I have to say, when I walked in the space, it's, I've never seen anything quite like it. I saw my name in lights. <laughs> you it feel like, special. Wow. <laughs> well, especially as a CBRE alone. So. 
<laughs> Thank you for well, doing. I mean, our media wall, the technology—it's—it's it's meant to make. It's meant to have that experience that you feel welcome, and our clients feel welcome. And I appreciate that. That was awesome. <laughs> I'm glad it worked. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. So, recent trends in office construction have been to consolidate use to smaller amounts of space per employee. Will offices be more plug and play going forward? How will the upcoming air quality, well, current air quality and environmental issues affect costs of operation? Will this reduce the number of landlords as, as the cost of these changes may overcome the, re the returns needed to justify new projects? There's a lot in that question. I know there <laughs> to, is. To, and to unpack On purpose. It, yes. <laughs> look, I think that through COVID, we, we saw a lot of owners look at making changes in where they could and in, in the buildings that they had. But as I mentioned, pre mentioned flight to quality is, is important. And right. we're seeing, you know, people make decisions based on that. I mean, this building too, the air quality, all of those elements, I think helped people feel, and we also, it's lead, lead and it's fit well certified aspects that help people feel safer when they returned, you know, to the office. So I do think those, those things are important both for, you know, the, the leaders of those organizations, as well as, you know, for their employees and, and will be kind of, you know, part of what I think new building instruction will be looking to do moving forward. You've also seen, you know, in downtown DC, more buildings that they're looking to do residential conversion for some of these office buildings that might be more challenged to be brought up to, to date, so to speak, or to do some real changes that would make them attractive to office users. So I, I like that idea of the more of the adaptive reuse where it can be done and and we could certainly use, you know, more housing in downtown DC. So I feel mm -hmm. like there's 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 ways to find silver linings around some of these aspects that, you know, we're we're working with clients on each and every day. I assume that some buildings downtown are just not gonna be office long term. They right. just can't work. So so I assume some of your brokers are working on figuring that out for the clients. Yeah, right? and, and some, it, that whole conversion, it, I feel like that is a trend that's it's certainly picked up, as I've said, for both for residential, but even conversion opportunities if we if we go up the I-270 corridor for life sciences. I mean, that's been another great area and a great story for this market as, you know, we watch that part of the business grow and there's office buildings there that, you know, are ripe for conversion into more lab space and, and really to, you know, take on that, that very important and, and growing sector. Mm -hmm. So on the upside, how will office owners look to opportunities with disruptions occurring? So they're looking at all kinds of All kinds things. of things, yeah. I mean, obviously looking at what they can do within their space. And to your other point, we've, we're seeing, you know, owners do more spec suites because that seems to be also something that, that they can lease more quickly. The supply chain issues and getting furniture and things set up remain real. So if, if that can be part of the, you know, the offering, I think clients are attracted to that. I'd say the other trend that we're seeing is around flex space and in having, you know, maybe not per se the traditional co-working, but, but space within an office building that, you know, maybe smaller users can come in and it's just, it, it, it is more of a co-working format or mm -hmm. if it's a smaller company, maybe they take a suite and it's, it's something that they're not committed to a long-term lease, but but they're still able to have a, an office space to you know build their business and or see where their business is going to go from there. So if, if I'm a hundred thousand square foot user, we would love to represent you. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. But I'm not sure what I'm you know my needs are. Yeah, and I'm working on talking to my employees that are going to be in the space. 
Some of them want flexibility. Some of them are wanting to be in and are, want to learn. Other people are, you know, old school that are there every day. Other people say, I want to be fully remote, but I do want to come in every once in a while just to, to collaborate. And so you're doing space planning, you're working with an architect and you're saying, hmm, so how do we accommodate all these needs? What <laughs> this, is, this is a panoply yeah. of, of situations. How do we work with this? It is. And I mean, I think that, that what you painted, that picture is a very real picture for what clients are facing today. And they might not be, they don't have to be a hundred thousand square foot user to be facing that. Right. So, right. but I think there's real tools and, and, and ways that you can approach it. And I think one, even for those, those users to really understand what their team wants, understand what the business also needs And then there's ways to design the space that can meet those different needs. And perhaps it does mean, and we are seeing people downsize the amount of space that they need, but they're also adding more collaborative space and having it be less office intensive because if that person's not going to be in five days a week, do you really need a dedicated office for that individual? Right, you don't. So how do you really lay out that floor plan? And that's a big part of what CBRE does, both through our, our workplace strategy team, occupancy management team, tracking usage through technology and sensors. There's all kinds of ways to, to figure that out. But a lot of it also is you know, talking to your employees, the change management piece, the mission of the company, and, and how do you kind of meet people where they are, but also ensure you're able to run a successful business. Mm -hmm. So the question you ask yourself is why go in? Why even go into the office? So what are the main reasons you go to the office? One, I guess, is to learn. Maybe to collaborate, learn what's going on, what's happening. The other is the social piece, which, you know, I think is becoming, well, it has, even before the pandemic was, you know, one of my clients, former clients, Oliver Carr, decided several years ago to build, you know, make a, uh, the feeling as you walk in to feel like you're in a hotel yep. environment, a hotelization of office space. Yep. So that's been going on a while now, but I think it's even more important now to have a, a reason to come into the space. So, you know, I mean, it's got to be a question that a lot of the users are asking, you know, why, how do I attract my employees to the space? What is it that I can do to bring them in. Yeah. And so for us, that's an, another very important initiative, both for us as a company, but also helping others. And it's all around employee engagement and what that employee experience can be to attract them. And we're, and I think a lot of people are experimenting with lots of different things around that. I will say, and, and not not kidding, I mean, food and beverage and event you know, events Mm -hmm. held on a day with town halls when executives come in, just doing some type of celebration or or a meeting that we might hold that is is in person and then we do a reception on the rooftop. Those things that bring everyone together, we people come in for that. And I feel that we've seen also as people come in, they they see each other that and some people have seen people they might not have seen in a while and they remember how much they enjoy their colleagues and enjoy coming in and that might be the little something that draws them to come back you know again but but we certainly are thoughtful about different programmings and things that we're doing to to you know just to make it a reason and to as I said earlier to magnetize you know the workplace in a different way the other thing we like to say is that the number one employee amenity for return to office are other employees being there so no one wants to come in when nobody else alone. is here, yeah. correct, and be alone. So so we're just working and trying different things to make that happen. Sure. Will office users continue to pay up for premier locations in space? 
based on your answers so far, I'd say probably yes. As technology may have overcome location as a primary function for interaction, or will we return to our old ways of doing business? How do you see tenants manage the hybrid environment? You've already talked about it, but can you elaborate any more sure. on that? I mean, we have seen, we, we released our little our flight quality research recently, and it, it where we tracked a bunch of relocations over the last like couple of years. And, and clearly people will pay higher rent for better quality space. So that's real. And, and it also showed that people are moving up at least one class of the space that they're in where they can do it. So all of that is is real. And so the investment you know owners are doing in their space does matter and, and will help attract people back to you no know, back to their space. I think that the you know the other element around that is is the whole you know really what that as we talk what that experience around that space is and the hybrid piece it's interesting because what we've also seen everyone at first talks hybrid but there's different ways of hybrid and back to the point of people being here so guided flexibility is a term that we use that that we're flexible it's hybrid but let's pick the days so that we can at least get a core group of people in for that period of time so you don't have you know the instance when someone's in the office and they're not you know with their colleagues so mm-hmm. i think some of it's maybe more process related and just how companies try to you know organize themselves around it but it's i mean i think it's you know it's definitely something we're living in and working to evolve with and one other thing i guess I, I you made me think of too the health and wellness aspect is super important too so we're seeing, and that's a lot of things that we're doing here too, a lot of any kind of events or things that are around that and building that into the healthy workplace. It, it was always important, but I feel like it's taken on obviously a different level of importance since COVID. Okay. Suburban offices struggled since the early 1990s crisis. It will become more attractive. Will it become more attractive to costs and perhaps proximity to housing as it leaves the urban core, will millennials leave the urban living trend behind and spread out more and con- consequently want to office closer to home with when they start to have children? And, yeah. You know. I feel we oh I feel we always there was always that. Even when I was in New York, the folks that lived in the city when they started to have families would move out, you know, right. out of the city. And so I suspect that's always, you know, a part of you know, being in a metro area and then having opportunities to but live in surrounding The population areas. situation is, of course, millennials are the largest group of they people. Are. They are. They are. They're really starting to have families. They are. And uh, I was, it's interesting because we've, we've been tracking kind of migration, in and out migration since COVID. And obviously a lot of people left, you know, the metropolitan areas. But we are seeing more and more people coming back, which is good. I mean, maybe not yet to the level that it needs to be. But I think to your other point that the... The trend and, and, and just the, the ongoing interest in more of a mixed-use type, type environment, something that, you know, has everything. So your living, your restaurants, your shopping, right. all of that. I do think that, that that value proposition for people will continue to be an attractive, an attractive one, especially, you know, because if you can not have the commute time, but you can have everything around, you know, mm-hmm. around you and, and your work is right there, too. It's, it's something that we're hearing more and more of that, you know, current generation is interested in in being a part of. So places like Reston, National Landing, Bethesda, yep. places like that. Yep, are, even downtown, the Wharf, I mean, probably Capital Riverfront, all of those areas that are still even developing, I think, you know, will continue to see interest. And it's exciting. It's great for 
the city to have different options like that for people. In addition to office, CBRE is a leader in just about every product type in the industry. One area where I know CBRE is active is apartment sales. However, to my knowledge, you don't compete in apartment property management. Is that an area you are looking to grow? You don't. And I think it's, it's, it seems like an, a likely one that we would, but, but the scale and given the landscape and, and the competitors and people that do that, we probably have to do it in a, in a unique way. So I'm sure it's something we look at regularly, but no real insight it might require an it, M&A. It's even, hard, to, hard to find a gap in your services. That's about the only one I can Good job. <laughs> Good job. From, from, a, from a CBRE alum, who I love that. You went deep on us. So that's really, it's good. But yes, I, it, but it is. And so that could be. But time it's will about tell. the only time gap I could find, time frankly. Will tell. Yeah. We've, uh, we know. I will say we've expanded to a lot of different areas. You're, you're so right about that, even in my time here. Yeah, I mean, property management has grown significantly since I left CBE a long time yeah. ago. So, I mean, important part of our business. And then, I mean, the people that are in those roles, too, important part of our team. And if you think about it, John, throughout COVID, they were essential workers. They were on site. They were yes. keeping you know, the buildings running and, and doing what they needed to do when others you know, had the option to work from home. They did not. And they did an amazing job taking care of you know, tenants and others also that had to be essential and be there. So we're proud of that team. Yeah. What other interesting trends are you seeing with your services, services offerings? I mean, what, what's happening recently that yeah. people may not know about CBRE? Well, I mean, one that I would say just given the way things are today has been the whole workplace strategy, which we've had as an offering, but but I think it's it's more nuanced and it's it's deeper than it's ever been because the questions that we're trying to help people answer are more complex than they've ever been, and and they're not they're evolving as we as we talked about. So linked to that occupancy management, like bringing some science to it and to helping clients think through to your earlier question around what size do I really need to be? You know, how should I look at my workforce today? Things are different than it was, and here's my demographic, and here's you know. The people I need to attract and, and, and how do I go about doing that? So occupancy management, our labor and analytics, you know, given the challenge people have in hiring and the whole talent market mm-hmm. and labor market these mm-hmm. days, we've had that for a long time too, but the interest in really understanding that and companies looking at where they might want to locate to be closest to the talent that they want to recruit, uh, the science behind that has become much more important and much, much bigger part of the decision that, that you know, clients are making. And then we, we recently you know, brought our various consulting practices together into an overall America's consulting umbrella and group, which I think is, is awesome as coming from you know, the consulting world myself, because it really brings all the solutions that we have that are more advisory and consulting in nature under one umbrella and with professionals that can really help our clients think through all of their needs, no matter where they are in their can real estate journey. Can you cite journey. a case study of that? What you just uh, just out of curiosity? Sure, I mean it could be it could be a user that's trying to decide they're they're located here in DC. They might want to look to to look stay in DC or go to another market. So, but in thinking if they want to go to the suburbs, to your question around office buildings in the suburbs, we could bring in we have a, we'd have a a professional who could help bring in our labor team to understand you know what that talent base looks like. That could look at community patterns for existing employees, who do they want to attract as future employees, 
What does that workplace need to look like? So you bring in the workplace strategy element, understanding the vision of the company and what kind of space they might want. The occupancy management could bring the science around it, best practices, benchmarks around what other companies are doing. And then truthfully, we've got a design group as well that can help actually lay out some of this space. And we have a technology called, was called Floored, but Floored Plans that can really help lay out the space and then change it on the fly on an iPad. So you could really start to envision what that workplace could look like. So it can be a co-creation, an iterative process, but all you know, pre-making a decision on real estate, some more focused on the upfront strategy piece and where you want to go. So you have in-house space planners. We do. Not to the, not to the extent of an, well, an architectural. Well, well, actually through HERI, through our acquisition of HERI, we do have architectural capabilities. And then that team does now all of CBRE's internal space plan so for your your used used space but yes yes we um yes but also they can help they can we have a design collective that can help others as well yes so with regard to hiring today is cbre both a training ground for new graduates as well as a place to build a career brokerage historically has attracted young bucks who want to learn as much as they can before going out on their own or developing a book of business leverage themselves into their own practice, either within a large shop or their own. Has this changed and how? Well, we want this to be a place that people build a career. <laughs> but, but but no, I think that, that we definitely are hiring and we're across the spectrum. Sure. And what's, I think, great about a place like CB as well is that the variety of opportunities, as I mentioned before, that you could have at a place like this, right. that if you come in in the brokerage world... And for some reason, decide it's really not what you thought it was going to be, which is not uncommon. You could pivot and you could take that knowledge to another part of the business and still be in the real estate world and have a, an awesome career around it. But I, I think, yeah, it's it's we're always looking for the best talent. And sure. and I think it is a place you can build a, a very different career today, maybe than what it was when yeah. it was purely more of a brokerage right. offering. Right. So somebody might think that sales may not be quite a great fit, but there might be another aspect of your business internally that you would retain an employee. 100%. So, I mean, someone could decide that that they want to even actually go into a leadership role. I mean, as you said, if we hire from within, we've got a whole sales management team, we've got opportunities in research marketing, but also our corporate services side of the business. So, so the platform is so diverse, there's lots of opportunities. When I trained at CB, the whole idea was control, as we called it. Seek to be the primary source of information and transactions for the client and offer, and offer as many services as possible. Just kind of master that client yes, yes. <laughs> as much as you can. Is that still the case? I mean, more or less a one-stop shop for real estate services. I think it, I think it is, but maybe in a, a different sense. I mean, it's, it's, it, you want to be able, we, we are very much about providing our clients all the mm-hmm. services that we have. Many of the services that we've added have been in response to what the clients have asked for. And we are seeing more and more clients looking for one or maybe two providers that can really, you know, mm-hmm. handle their, their real estate needs and that have that core competency that live and breathe it. And therefore, they can focus on what's, you know, important for their business and what their business is all about. So I do think that the breadth of services matter. But clients are also looking for, you know, us to be advisors and leaders in other areas, whether it's around, you know, ESG related items or it's around DEN, diversity, equity, inclusion matters. So it's 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 spanned 
beyond just real estate, I think. And, and I would say with COVID especially, maybe in the past real estate decisions might not have been forefront for the CEOs, you know, to be, to be looking at. But now when it comes to attracting and retaining talent, when it comes to, you know, what do we need to do with our office space and do people come back into the office? I mean, these are all the questions that the C-suite is trying to address. So I think the, the role real estate can play in the overall business strategy has also just taken on a new level, especially since the pandemic. My background is in mortgage banking and also brokerage prior to that. And one thing, one trend that came on, and HFF did it way back when, where they would have an opportunity to sell a property, they do a sale, and then they would tell the tell their sales client that we would like the opportunity to place the financing on the purchase as well. And they incentivized the structure so that they would incentivize it such that they would hire them for both both tasks on both sides of the, of the equation. I thought that was a little over the top sometimes. It kind of gets into the dual brokerage issue and that kind of thing. Do you, like, so for instance, if you're engaged with the client, an office, say you're looking at seeking office space for a client, and all of a sudden, you know, they want to buy the building and then there's a financing need, Obviously, you're going to introduce that. Is there inducement internally for, for those kinds of services or not to do that? No, I mean, right. we it, we would look at it as collaboration and just really trying to help the client solve their problem right. to deliver the best outcome. Right. So we would, and, and those professionals would bring in the, the you know, sales professionals or the financing professionals Normally, there's a referral that. structure internally. But yeah, but right, but it's, it's de minimis, actually. So it's more about doing what's right so for the client. Serving the client. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we want to be the ones to help them versus them going somewhere else. And it goes back to your con- control question, because if you can be the place that helps them across the whole spectrum, you're, you're better situated to be exactly. well, that's why that partner. Yes, yeah. it's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> but you live in this business, so it's awesome. Yeah, I, yeah. these are questions that come up. Yeah. You know, talk about the challenges. Of, this is another one. Managing brokers. And I call it herding cats. <laughs> By nature, they're independent, self-motivated, pursue where they see opportunity. I know specialization has really narrowed individuals' focus, focuses, yet most niches are wide enough for creative latitude. How has the team concept helped channel this? Yeah, I think brokers are, are I was just say they're fun to manage, maybe fun is in the right word, but, but it's, it's, if you think about it, they're, they're very talented individuals that are very driven, as you said, and it's, it's fun to connect and play into them and help them figure out how they grow their business, how do they best serve their clients. Sometimes you might have to help them with an internal dispute if there might or some kind of a dispute, but you're still there. And so I think it's, it's, you are right that's not your traditional, you know, it's more of an influence, I guess, coaching model and collaboration model. And if you're the great partner to them, they're a great partner back. And so for me, I think, and, and, if, and you know, when, you're, when you're there to help and figure out how to you know, grow the business, which helps all of us and also helps our clients if we're doing the best possible work that we can do for them, it's, it's a win-win. So it's actually, it's been really fun, but it's something that you, know, you, need to, you need to build your credibility along the way and you need to, you know, it needs to take time and you need to actually do what you say you're going to do so they know they can rely on you in that year. You know, you're that person that they can count on. Well, you on. mentioned a word that I'd like you to expand a little bit on, and that's coaching. How do you see that that term and that 
approach to managing in, in the brokerage business as opposed to the traditional top-down management type of thinking to some extent. Yeah, I think, right, because right, I think in coming from other corporate places where it was always a top-down management, this is more of a coaching influencing model. And right. so I see it as a way that you really get to know that professional, their goals. You, you do business planning with them. You work together or the team. It could be an individual or team around mm-hmm. what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, they're often obviously highly driven, aspiring to get to that next level and working with them to get there with the training that they might need. The, and, and potentially, John, having the, the difficult conversations, too, around what might be working for them, what might not be. And if, if they trust you and you have a, a good relationship, they'll listen and hopefully that will enable them to you know, take their performance to a whole different level. I mean, I think that's the most rewarding part of certainly my role when I have the opportunity and I, I try to do that, the people development side. And I'd say that for the rest of my leadership team. That That's what, I guess, makes us get up in the morning, come in, and then just it's the growth it's of the people. It's the growth of the business. It's the most fun part of this business. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes opening up people's thought process to blind spots that it didn't they didn't have that they didn't realize they had. Yeah, can be very rewarding, I would think. Yeah, but you have to you have to have the right kind of relationship, and you have to go into it with the right mindset trust. and trust. Exactly, it's the trust is so important, and and know how to have that conversation in a way that the other person can hear you and consume it and, and not it, be offended. Correct, <laughs> and so there is there's a bit of a, an art to that, but it's and it's not and it's it's certainly different for every person. So not a one size fits all by any means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk about ESG sensitivity today. How has it changed since you joined CBRE? So it's, obviously ESG is all encompassing, and we could cover all all different oh, sides sure. of it. So I'll 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 break up two pieces of it from the environmental part of it. You know, it's it's. It was fun for me as we were doing this office and, and to be part of something that's looking at how we might approach, you know, lead certification around that or fit well certification. So the health and wellness piece and, you know, all of those elements are, are critically important to people today, probably always were. But I think even more so back, you know, in my earlier years, it was really all just about lead. Now it's just taken to a whole, you know, a whole different level around around what's important, especially since covid I think what's exciting for CB is we've also expanded our offering. We've got Altus Power, so we do solar power, so through a SPAC that we did. So we're, we're very much environmentally conscious. It's super important from our overall corporate responsibility, both framework and execution, you know, reducing you know, emissions. All of those elements are part of CBRE's mission. And obviously, we are property managers of these buildings and how do we make smarter buildings, green buildings, all of those elements will be a, a focus of ours going forward. And I've watched that evolve and, and just taken, you know, we've taken more steps and more depth in our ability to do that, which I think is great. On the social side of it, I mean, for for me, a passion of mine has been, you know, obviously women in this business, minorities in this business. I've been on our diversity, equity, and inclusion, our executive council for years. We've had a women's network in place since 2000. I mean, it's it, in it's almost 5,000 members now. It was not back you know, in the day. So I think all of that is is something that, again, is very important from our CEO, Bob Salentic, you know, down and across the organization. And we're making progress, but there's clearly, you know, more work to be done. So the woman, 
that's not to, in the male-dominated real estate business, how have you navigated either perceived or real prejudice in the industry? Any interesting stories? You know, it's it's it, it goes back to, I think part of it was my my upbringing and the 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 way I approached things that there was in the way I guess my parents raised me that there was nothing I couldn't do if I didn't work work hard at it. So I think I've always just had you know, that perspective as I've gone into different things, I would say, look, clearly this, when I started in this business, we had already had taken steps from back in the days, I think when you were in the business and I've watched just in my 14 years here, you know, take further steps and how we treat people and the equity and how we include people and all the things that we need to do. And yet I would say there's still more work to be done. But for me, what I've tried to do is through the roles I'm playing, either affect change where I am locally in the business that I'm running or through the role that I'm doing on, on the council that I'm a part of. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of one thing that we did several years ago is, you know, our brokerage professionals are 100 percent commissioned. So if you're an individual contributor and maybe not part of a team and a female producer who wants to or needs to take time to have a family and is mm-hmm. going to be out for a few months, I mean, you know very well that that booking, building that business, that pipeline, that business development during that time frame has to stop. And so how do we level that playing field and allow those professionals still to continue to progress and advance from a title standpoint and all of those elements, sure. which is based also on, on revenue and production? And so we put in a policy in place around that that actually allows us if, if they ha- if they take time to, you know, have a family that we can kind of look at look at their progress in a different way and and level that playing field so they have that opportunity and they're not really taking a step back to do something else. So there's things like that that we've tried to change. We came up with a kind of revised parental leave policy, just trying to do things that that recognize the fact that this is a business that if you're not you know developing or executing and you're a sole person, you step away for any reason, you know it could affect it could affect you. And so how do we try to address that? Mm-hmm. That's great. So I, I posted in my, sh- in my questions to you a book link. You right? did. A speech link. And did you have a chance to listen to I, it? Of course I did. I did. Uh, I, w- I wondered how you picked that. I thought it was really interesting. Well, I have a whole story behind that, which I can go into, but I, don't, I could just quickly say that I formed a group of young people, now 55 members, inspired by that speech. It's called the Multidisciplinary Approach to Thinking. I'd been a mentor at ULI for 16 years prior to that. So I feel very strongly about, you know, in empowering young people in our industry. And so this speech is about, multi, you know, looking at things from a generalist standpoint, going first, you know, just looking at, you know, there's multiple things to think about. You know, it's a generalist thought process and it just empowers you, I think, a little bit. So what did you, what were your takeaways? Well, I loved how they framed it with the overall, I guess, as they said, the hack around it, which was, you know, go positive, go first That's and right. do it constantly. Right. And I, it resonated me with me because that's, I mean, that's how I approach what I do. And that's how I approach my role here. Like it, you, you need to be positive. You want to be out there first, but, but you need to do, you need to do it constantly because inconsistency, you're never going to get to where you want to want to go if you don't do that. So I just, I just thought it was really fascinating. And in this business, especially that positive outlook 
And, you know, and there were examples in the speech about how people treated each other or just, you know, different. Do you like the dog story? The dog one, which. So the one dog, the one dog goes to the fence and to his neighbor dog and says, I, 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 I'm going to tell you the secret about, about, about people. He said, all you have to do is when they come home for about five minutes, just wag your tail and show interest <laughs> in them completely. <laughs> and then after that, you can go off and do your own thing. And then they're just, they'll treat you treat like. Treat you fabulously. Didn't they have a cat story too? I was thinking back yeah, when you well, said the there was a cat one. Yeah, well, the cat story is the opposite. <laughs> the opposite. The right? opposite. Right, right. So, so if you take the cat by a tail, you swing it around right. your that head. Was, that was the, cat, the cat one was the one I remember. I'm a big dog person. So the dog thing, I love the dog, the dog interaction. But yeah, the cat one, yeah, they're not going to love that. So Exactly. But, but, it, but it was, it was, I never, so this was new to me. So thank you. For uh, introducing welcome. that that to me and the framing around it, because I found it I found it really interesting, and and then I was like, wow, that's that's something I believe in, but never didn't pull it together that way. So yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's just really good wisdom. Yes, it is for life. It's life. It's life. It's a life lesson. Totally. It yeah. is. So I'll share it in the show notes for listeners. But my group, we we live around it, and I introduce it to every new member of the group and all that, I think it's really important. So now I'm going to shift to personal things. So what are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back? So, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So I'll start with work only because if you haven't figured it out yet, I mean, I love what I do. I've always enjoyed working. My, I think you know, through yeah, my parents, my father, I have a strong work ethic, and, and I'm lucky. I'm lucky in that I enjoy what I do and, you know, the advice everyone's always given is find something you're passionate about and, and, you know, really the world is yours. And so I've been really fortunate and it's been a big part of, you know, of what's, what's driven me. But with that said, you know, family to me was the number one priority. And I, for the last several years, and I mentioned I'm an only child, taking care of my parents as they aged was a very big priority of mine. And my mom passed away several years ago. My father did in 2020. I feel very fortunate that I was able to be there and spend time with them. And and if I was ever to give someone an advice around family and granted, I was fortunate that I had a great family and great parents is, you know, use your time with them to get to know them because they were young ones too. And they had a life and, and there's a lot there to learn that maybe when you're growing up, you don't see because you're you know, busy kind of growing up and doing the things that, that you do. So I was also fortunate and still am to have an amazing husband who was my partner in that. And so, so, and his parents, unfortunately, around the same time passed away. So there's been a lot of that family sure. piece there, but, but, but I have a lot of, I mean, a lot of wonderful memories and I, I feel very fortunate around that. So now I feel like, you know, I've, I've, and that took quite a bit of time. They were in Florida. So there was mm-hmm. a, a lot of, sure. of navigating that, but now it's my time to focus more on giving back. And I'm really excited about that. And especially about the fact that for this year, and I'll, I'll share that I'm going to be an honoree for the Boys and Girls Club of Washington, oh, um, real estate luncheon. Another thing I'm passionate about is exposing, you know, young people to our business, and especially diverse talent, because I think you need to get out there and learn about our business when you're younger. And hopefully that's a 
the starting point of, you know, a love affair with our business that would bring, you know, more, more talent into our business. So I'm excited to, to be working on behalf and being partnered with the Boys and Girls Club for what I think is a great, a great cause and look to go deeper with that. I've always been interested in the arts and I did work in, in New York as part of the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, especially it was after 9-11 and trying to, you know, build back downtown, you know, New York. So I feel like there's other things I've talked to people in this market about. So I'm looking forward to really focusing more on more on that moving forward. Awesome. That's great. So what are your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career, Kyle? Okay. So most surprising, I'll just have to, I have to say the obvious is leading a team through a pandemic. I don't, I don't, I don't, okay. I don't think that was covered in business school and <laughs> not anything I expected to, to encounter, but, but I think I, you know, I learned, I learned a lot through that. I mean, that's kind of, Another thing for me is, is I, I love opportunities to learn and grow both mm. personally and professionally. So, but that was, you know, not, nothing that was expected, especially I'd been here in DC two years and then it was just starting to really feel more connected. And then obviously, you know, the last several years, it's, you know, been a different environment, but it's coming back. I feel it. And I'm excited, you know, to see a lot of the colleagues I met in my early years now back in person again. So that's, that's going to be awesome. Wins, I would say, I'm, I'm living it right now. I mean, I, the, the role in taking on this opportunity with CBRE, coming from New York to a new market, like I said, did not know DC, a team I knew, some of the people, and to your, your point around clients and law firms, I mean, we had shared clients between New York and DC, very much sister cities, I think, in a lot of ways. This is taking on this opportunity and, and the ability now to you know continue to grow and, and lead us out of you know what we've been doing the last like couple of years is really exciting for me and something that I'm you know looking forward to continuing to do and having this opportunity. I have a, just a great team, our talent's amazing and, and just how do we take it to the next level? So I'm excited about that and that would be I guess a win that I'm living right now. And then losses, you know it's always interesting. I don't I don't think in terms of losses, I think of losses as lessons. Right. And I'm sure a lot of people that you've interviewed probably have a similar mindset. It's, it's, you learn from something that might not go right. And so for me, it's, it's how and what you take from that experience, mm -hmm. apply it, that you either do it better the next time, do it differently the next time, whatever that, that might be. So, you know, could I say, you know, was there a pitch that we lost or, Someone I tried to recruit that didn't come. I mean, of course, we've all had those, but I just, I just. Did you ever bet forward. on anybody that kind of, you know, you said, "Oh my God, that didn't work out so well." <laughs> so, so yes, I mean, I've I've brought people on my team, and 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 it was not the right fit, and yeah, mm -hmm. that 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 has happened, and you you know you. Often, actually, when you manage through that situation, sometimes it's also the best for that individual as well if, right. if you take a different path. And sometimes people just, you know, need help to, to get there. So I think you approach all those kinds of things with compassion mm -hmm. and caring about the other, other party and mm -hmm. make it the best you can. Which industry professionals inspire you and why? I mean, that's, a, that's a tough one. The one thing I've been... Loving about DC is the, and, and you know this, you've been here now a long time. I mean, the wonderful collegial group of professionals in the real estate community, especially, but I'd say also the business community here. And while New York, I mean, also has a robust real estate community, I think the size and scale makes it harder to, to make those 
those connections. And so there's too many people for me to say here in this market that have been amazing to me as a new person coming in that have, you know, just really helped open doors or just help me connect. And I, and, and it's, it's been an amazing journey, but when you, when you kind of framed out as, as a person, I, th- I thought if I was to single out somebody that just influenced kind of where I am today would be back to my New York days. And one of my early, really actually I was interviewing with CBRE at the time. And I don't know if you ever encountered her, but Marianne Ty was, you know, our, our top broker is, yeah, yes. in New York. And she, I remember still interviewing when I was thinking to come to, C- to CB and I mean, she talked about someone who was a trailblazer and pioneer in our business that, you know, certainly was a very different business when she entered it to where it is today. It just was always just so impressive to watch her creatively solve her clients' problems, you know, how she she actually when, was so happy for me when she heard I was taking on this role here in D.C. because she also has roots in D.C. She lived here for a while, you know, work. work worked here. And, and so anyway, she's just someone that really made a mark, I think, on, on New York City real estate and paved the way for those to come after her. That's great. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self to mm-hmm. Kyle? That's it. It's a, another great question. As you can see, and it might be my New York City upbringing, I, I talk fast. If you saw me walking, I walk, I walk fast. It's to be present and to take those moments and times for yourself. And I think in doing that along the way, it makes you stronger and better for those around you. So it's, it's, and sometimes you're just wired because you, you know, you're moving and you're trying to find solutions, you're on to the next thing, but you should enjoy the victories along the way. You should take time, you know, for friends and family, take time for yourself. Like I said, it just, it just makes you a better and, and ready and more able to, to serve team, family, anybody around you if you do that. So... I'm doing more of that now. I probably got part of that through my Peloton uh, is my new thing yeah, since the pandemic, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's good and, and work out and just do all those things that, you know, that keep you balanced as best you can in a world that's, you know, so can be the, challenging. My final question I'd ask all my guests, if you could post a statement on the billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? It's, it's actually a very creative question. And it, and for me, I think it'd be just something very simple and straightforward, and it would be, be kind. Okay. Two words, and it can mean so many different things to so many people. And if we all had that mindset, as we looked at each other and the world around us, the world would be in even a better place to be. So, so Kyle Shotman, thank you very much for joining me on Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank well, you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed learning more about Kyle Shopman. I found her to be a driven and work-focused person and relatively intense, but she understands her job well and learning how to coach and work with people in self-development. She had sales training and practice, but not in the disciplines that are traditional to the industry, but her skills are more in the consulting and leadership development area which she learned at her experiences at Dow and PwC and IBM. So she takes a more of consultative approach, which was interesting in contrasting it from my background in the sales and brokerage time back in the 1980s. But that's probably indicative of how the industry is 
has changed and that's become more consultative with much more broader services that offerings to clients of, of the company. And it was so it's not only an evolution of who is in management, but an evolution of the company itself and the industry itself. And we talked about some of the challenges that we had we have, of course, with the post-pandemic and her shock of dealing with <laughs> coming into a brand new role and then having everything shut down. So that was her biggest surprise and having to deal with it. So I thought it was a very interesting conversation. And it kind of is indicative of what today's management should be in in this environment of uncertainty and moving forward in the brokerage area and commercial real estate. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kyle. And we're going to have another one in a couple of weeks. And thank you for joining me on Icons of DC Area Real Estate.